Welcome to the Maintainable Software Podcast, where we speak with seasoned practitioners who have helped organizations work past the problems often associated with technical debt and legacy code. I'm your host, Robbie Russell. On this episode, we're joined by Jonathan Aborby, who is an engineering team lead at the BBC in voice and AI and is based in Glasgow, Scotland. Jonathan Aborby, welcome to Maintainable. Thanks, Robbie. Nice to be here. So let's dive right into it. Given your experience in the software industry, what do you believe are a few common traits that a software's code base is being well-maintained? Yeah, I think maintainable code is code that's really easy to change and really easy to accommodate new requirements and changes in technology. And you can tell a lot about a team by the code that they write. Does the code open itself to change? Is it open to new requirements? Is it open to new features? And good maintainable code is, and the teams that produce it tend to be a lot happier with what they're building. And in turn, what they built is of a higher quality and easier to work with. So I think at the BBC in in my department, we work a lot under the principles from Google's Project Aristotle, which was Google did a huge study internally of how their teams operate and what makes for effective teams. And they identified sort of five characteristics around what makes a team, a software team, happy, healthy, and productive. And it's things like psychological safety, dependability, structure, clarity, meaning, impact. And sort of taken together, these five things make generally for really productive and happy teams. Some of these things taken together really create a culture where it's okay to take risks and it's okay to make mistakes. And you can tell that the teams that learn from their mistakes uh, really reflect that in their work. Do you find that, you know, within these teams, do, do you, do you, does the BBC, your, the department that you're working within there use technical debt as a metaphor? Yeah. And it's, it can be a contentious metaphor. I think we talk a lot about technical debt internally. And the project that my team is working on is kind of greenfield, but nothing is ever greenfield. You, you always end up integrating with other systems that, you wish you didn't have to and you know that sort of thing that always happens right but as much as we talk about right we're going to do this right this time we're not going to take on any technical debt from the start we're going to build the best architected system and it's it everything's going to be fantastic and then 3 months in you realize that you've built the ball of mud that you were trying to avoid from the start i think it's inevitable on every project but the the reason you take on this this tech debt is because you're trying to borrow time from the future, really. I heard a really good metaphor for financial debt, where you're really borrowing money from the future to pay for something in the present, but eventually you have to pay back that thing that you borrowed. Where you end up in trouble with technical debt is where the developers who are working or the engineers who are working on a project and the product managers who are owning the user experience and the business outcomes don't agree on the route that you have to take to get there. So sometimes there are deadlines. There's inevitably deadlines. There are times where you have to ship because there's an external dependency. You know, I've worked in educational software. Everybody goes back to school in September. 
you have to ship stuff, right? You make some decisions that you wish you didn't have to do, and you can make conscious decisions to take on debt, to pay things forward. It's when you unconsciously take on tech debt and then discover later that you've made some decisions that probably weren't ideal and then don't get to fix them that you sometimes end up in trouble. Do you find that developers, when they're kind of discussing technical debt, sometimes it's maybe an opinion that something is difficult to work with or is it just being mislabeled and maybe it's just bad code? Do you, do you, are you able to distinguish the difference between bad code and technical debt? Ooh, that's a good one. Bad code, is it subjective? Sometimes I think it's subjective. And sometimes technical debt is something that objectively is a drag on delivery. Bad code is something that I would probably expect a pair of developers who are working on a ticket, if they're working in an area of the code that hasn't seen some love in a while, and they think, you know, why, why was this function written this way? Who, who wrote this? How does this work? How did this ever work? That's probably bad code, and they should probably figure that out, and they should look at the tests, and they should fix the tests around it and make sure that it's working. If it's something structural, I think that's more technical debt. I'm thinking of an example of a product that I worked on a very long time ago at a very different company. It was 200,000 lines of Java, and it was written, uh, I believe it started in like 1998. And uh, this was 2014 when I was working on this. And it was a web service that was written in a time uh, when you know, Java is a garbage collected language. It pauses. You can't really have those kinds of latencies when you're serving web requests. So the designers of this product went to great lengths to avoid garbage collection. I don't know how familiar many of your listeners are with Java, but effectively what they did was pre-allocate loads and loads and loads of memory. And then you never had to garbage collect anything because you just kept reusing objects. It's completely not idiomatic Java. And anybody joining this project who was new would look at this and scratch their head and think, you know, like this was written by a bunch of C like systems programmers. It's quite obvious because it's not Java. And what ended up happening with this, this product was it went on for years like this. And it was the same couple of developers, handful of developers who were working on this. It became more and more impossible to add features, but the features just kept coming. And you ended up in 2014 with a product that used Java applets in the browser and was so difficult to maintain from the back end, 200,000 lines of code and not a single test. It was just incredibly difficult to work with unless you had the whole thing in your head. So that is technical debt. And it's, <laughs> it's, it's like a technical mortgage. It's not even technical debt. And then the house burned down and you're left with this mortgage and a vacant lot. Like it's just really hard to work with. Yeah, I can imagine. I'm curious, like in that type of, you know, that project you'd worked on a number of years ago, did that type of application basically result in them having to like needing to do a rewrite or were they able to kind of iterate their way out of that? We iterated through it actually quite successfully. Uh, I, I obviously didn't stay to see the end of it, unfortunately. Something else, a different opportunity came along for me. But what we ended up doing was 
effectively like following the working effectively with legacy code playbook and growing object-oriented systems, the goose book, uh, one of my favorites, you know, we started by wrapping these things in tests and refactoring as we could. We did do sort of like a feature freeze on it. We agreed with the product managers that there was no new customer facing functionality going into this. And we just sat there and refactored. We refactored all the database code. We refactored all of the web request handling. We, we refactored everything out of it. Like I remember a commit that I made that was 11,000 lines of code deleted and it turns out it didn't actually do anything anyway. So it was quite a fulfilling project. If you really like seeking efficiencies. And I love those kinds of refactoring projects. I feel quite out of water in my uh, current thing where I'm building something new. Uh, I just can't wait to build something really bad so that I can fix it. Uh. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I'm, I'm curious if, you know, you're touching on how like in that project, like that reference to that last, that one commit where you deleted a lot of code, what sort of strategies have you been able to take like that to identify that there's areas of the code base that aren't necessary to still exist anymore because i know that people joining projects it's it's not easy to go well this might be used somewhere especially if there's a scenario where there's little to no tests or maybe not full understanding of everything that's going on in the system if you don't have that mental map how do you do that uh yeah it's really easy to cheat on that because intellij tells you if code is unused most of the time it, sometimes it's false positive so you, you do have to sometimes just check to see if it still works but it was a bit of a cheat. So I'm sorry, that's not a very satisfying answer. <laughs> I think that's one of the things that, you know, maybe some developers like myself, like I work in the Ruby and Ruby on Rails world and we don't have a lot of, I mean, there might be some like some fancy IDEs now around that do some of that, but it's never been something that I've really worked with myself. So when people talk about like, we have these built-in refactoring tools and I'm like, that sounds really interesting and, and all, for a lot of reasons. And I know that there's like trade-offs from working from say the Java world versus Ruby and stuff like that. But I'm always curious about how, more mature some of those types of tools can be when I when I also know a lot of developers don't do anything near like that their own IDEs because it's way more just different different level of programming I think so so is it safe to assume that with some of your projects you've seen how different design patterns might say have been adopted at different periods and different stages of when those say patterns were popular throughout like a single software's life cycle yeah definitely so I also worked on a project that was a banking system, for want of a better term, and it had a web front end to it. So it was an internal back office application with a web front end and backed by microservices. There's a lot of closure involved. It was really great. The front end was obviously JavaScript. The JavaScript, you could see the evolution of the code base from around 2013 when it started until about 2018, 19, I think it's still going 2020, where like different people joined the project or led the project. And you could almost see like, you know, in an archaeological excavation where you go down through the layers of like the Stone Age, the Bronze Age, the Iron Age, we had like React and then knockout and then plain jQuery and then something else. Like you could just keep going down and see this sort of like not even really an evolution because nothing was ever sort of cohesively moved together. It was just this 
history of JavaScript frameworks in a code base. I'm very familiar with that type of example with the the JavaScript in particular because knowing that there's been a lot of different frameworks and plugin tools, things like jQuery, you know, obviously took a hold at one point and. But there's a lot of software out there that was built a lot of features with that. And then and you use React, and now you have systems where it's got two to four different JavaScript frameworks being loaded, and you're not sure where you need what specifically loaded because if, if it's not been well organized or if you haven't gone back and like replaced the stuff that was built with jQuery originally, and then you get stuck in the specific versions of jQuery and you're afraid to break things or if you have plugins that you're relying on... Uh, it's, it's, it's interesting to, yeah, it's, it's a pretty common problem, I think, for a lot of web companies to go through that if they don't have, like, all right, we need to go back and replace this stuff and refactor that stuff. You know, thinking about this, do you find that there's some, um, is this just kind of falling under the technical debt realm of knowing that you're doing the, or maybe sometimes you don't know that these things are happening until someone's like looking around and be like, why do we have jQuery and React still like sitting by side by side? But do you see there's some pros or cons to not addressing that? Or do you think those are things that teams should be trying to actively track down and and clean up sooner than later? It's one of those things that it's really hard to know the value ahead of time of what you're doing until you've done it. And we actually did make a decision on that product that any new development would be done with React and Redux and sort of the tooling around that. And eventually we hoped that we would get to a tipping point where it made no sense to do any development in the older frameworks. And it became such a small part of the code base that it just made sense to get rid of it. You know, like it was the last 10% sort of thing. And it worked really well for us because one of the advantages of that application was that it was very modularized and a lot of the forms and modules and, and things on that page were reusable from screen to screen. So if we made a new screen, the deal was that all of the modules in it got ported forward to React. And then eventually we ended up with like a small number of modules that weren't in React and it just made sense to sort those out. For let's say, you know, that's in like say the JavaScript world where there, I mean, there's some conventions, but I think there's a lot of, they're not necessarily super, maybe as strongly opinionated frameworks, I think in some ways, aside from that, let's just, you know, you're talking about other types of, you know, you mentioned like the goose book and stuff. Do you find that if there's like a, those that might be working on a legacy application, that it's better to try to honor some of the original design patterns that were implemented? Or do you think it's, it's worthwhile to like try keeping up with what's going on in the industry and and then you end up with the scenario where you have different design patterns over time. And if you don't always have an opportunity to go back and revisit some of the original design patterns that were implemented. Yeah, I, it's, it's interesting because I think we've all joined projects at one point or another in our life where we open the code and we think to ourselves, wow, like, how did this ever get to this state? What were these people thinking when they wrote this? And I think it's really important to understand when you're looking at code, first of all, and foremost, that people wrote this. And also, they're probably sitting next to you still. So I really do sort of like to remember the retrospective prime directive and understand that people did the best they could with the knowledge they had at the time and the tools they had available. And I think, yes, there is absolutely room for growing and bringing in new practices. Because one of the best things about adding a new member to your team is that they bring knowledge from outside the company. They bring knowledge from outside your team. They've solved problems before in a way that you haven't, and they might've solved problems you don't know that you have. And 
I think it's really good to bring in that fresh focus and that fresh point of view. The temptation sometimes, though, is there to say, like, God, like everything is terrible and we just need to fix it. And you should be doing this design pattern and that design pattern. But I think there's a two-way street there. Like the teams that you're joining have to understand that you're bringing new expertise or so some this new individuals bringing new expertise. That person has to understand that there's context behind everything the way that it was built. So yeah, I do think that there's value in bringing new design patterns to code bases there's value also in understanding that the code that's there was written that way for a reason. And that reason might just be that they didn't know what they were doing when they wrote it. But if that's the case, then that's why you need to have good sort of psychological safety on the team, a good safe working environment. Because if you have that good safe working environment, people are totally happy to say, yeah, I really didn't know what I was doing when I wrote that. Or, or you know, ideally they should be. Out of curiosity, with you're talking about like onboarding new people, and they have you bring in this new set of expertise or experience from other projects, from you know from a different world. Basically, they come in. Do you find that when their their team is able to get like implementing new design patterns or approaches to refactoring can also be kind of a, an exciting time for people that have been on the project for a while, versus it being like oh I have to go back and deal with this mess finally. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, the team that I lead right now is working in a field that we have very little background knowledge about. Everyone who joins the team has something new to offer because everything is new to us. We can very easily go back and look at the thing that we did last week and think, you know what, actually, in hindsight, we shouldn't have done it that way. When new people join, they often have that sort of perspective, not just on how they did something technically, but from a product perspective, from a business perspective, how did we solve that problem at the last place that I came from? And that is super valuable as well, because I I do really feel that software engineers need to understand not just the technical, but they also have to understand the business context behind what they're doing. And that in itself can lead to good work that is maintainable and extendable. Because if you understand the business context, then you can anticipate the future. You know, if you're open to it, I would love to ask you a few questions about your role as an engineering team lead at the BBC. I know you're touching on a few aspects to, you know, you touch on psychological safety. And I want to dive into that as well. How does your team balance working on, say, new features and enhancements? I know that you're working on something new, so I would imagine that you're mostly working on new things right now. But Versus, say, spending time on revisiting some of the previous technical decisions that you've made. Is there, from a tactical approach, where does this type of work fit into the process? The the balance, it's, it's hard to achieve because sometimes we do have to go back and think, right, so this requirement has changed, right? Like we we needed to put together some sort of software that, takes data from point A and puts it in point B and does some transformation on it. Great. As it turns out, the first time you do that, it's really easy. The second time you do it, it's okay. The third time you do it, you realize that you have an unmanageable mess on your hands because it's just going to end up in a fourth, fifth, and sixth time. So you start to dig and, and try to solve this problem, right? How do I visualize data flows in my system? How do I, how do I manage 
jobs. And it turns out that there's a hundred ways to do it and, and you know, a dozen products that want to do it for you. And some of them are cloud, some of them you host yourself. It becomes a really hard problem to even figure out what the right thing is to do next. And I think on my team in particular, we do spend a lot of time delivering new features, but we also kind of understand that although there's a lot of support inside the BBC for data and data teams, there's also a certain aspect of our work that is different from the way that other teams have done it in the past. So we can very easily look at other product teams in the BBC and see, all right, they're using Airflow or they're using you know, an Amazon product or they're using a Google product for this work. And we can look at that and say, right, okay, even if I was going to use one of those products, is it the right one for my use case? And so we end up spending a lot of time evaluating the right thing to do so Jonathan Cottrell's podcast, The Developer T, uh, is one of my favorites because it's really short, but he also usually has something really good to say. And I remember listening to one about how oftentimes when we're really anxious about a decision, we try to gather more information. We try to gather more and more and more information because it helps us predict the outcomes from our upcoming decisions. And I find that that is true to a point with this sort of, how do we decide to go back and, f and fix the last thing that we did? I, I think sometimes you just have to take a leap and, and decide that, you know, what we have right now is definitely not sustainable. I don't know what is sustainable, but that next thing probably gets us on that path to sustainability. If it doesn't, you do it again. And, and I think if I've learned anything, it's that like the second, third or fourth time you do it, you might get it closer to right. But also understand that every bit that you leave behind is a drag on your future delivery. Somebody is going to start relying on that, even if you don't want them to. It's very true. You know, I think when you're evaluating, especially like, say, a third party dependency or, you know, tool or software product, and you're kind of weighing up the different options there, you don't you don't always know what you're going to need later on down in the road. And that, that is a complicated one. And one thing I've seen developers do and something I've kind of coached my own team on is to consider doing things like how we phrase things. Like, well, let's pilot this out for a period of time. Let's try this for the next quarter and see how far we're... So that we're not, we're not seeing it as a, a permanent decision, but something that can be revisited. So we're like, we all know this isn't like a forever decision and we might get it wrong the first couple of times and that's going to be okay, but we'll learn more. But we, it's hard to just compare apples and oranges and all these different products side by side into some sort of grid and be like, this is the least risky decision we could make as they go down this path. And it's, it's not always so straightforward and you can spend a lot of time researching things and then dive into the thing that you thought was actually going to be the right answer. And then realize really quickly, like, Oh, this was a, totally, I was totally wrong. So. Yeah. And I think learning is super important. My team are voracious learners. They, they love it. They're always, you know, we do weekly tech talks on the team. Uh, someone goes away, researches a tech they haven't seen before, comes back and does a presentation about it, even if we don't use it. You know, like someone, someone on my team did one on Amazon Deep Racer, which is really cool. It's their uh, machine learning powered race cars, which, you know, is totally impractical for us. But what was really interesting about it was that they first of all, we're really passionate about what they were doing, but it just builds that culture of sharing and teaching someone else about something that you didn't know about. So 
there's absolutely value in making bad decisions as long as you recognize that you've made a decision that isn't the one that you want to go forward with. And I think not being afraid to fail at something as long as you understand that it's a learning experience and being able to share that learning experience with your team is really valuable and a valuable shared experience. I think it's a really important point you're making there. And I want to to reconnect on something you mentioned a little bit earlier about psychological safety. For those that might not have heard a couple of the episodes where some of our guests have touched on that a little bit, but what is psychological safety? So psychological safety is... It's an individual's perception of the consequences of taking an interpersonal risk, okay? So if a team is safe, then it's okay for people to take risks and not be perceived or not feel like they're going to be perceived as incompetent or negative or, you know, like all these sort of bad things, right? If you have a team with good psychological safety, people feel okay taking risks around each other and that they're not going to get embarrassed or punished for admitting a mistake or asking a question. And as someone that's overseeing an engineering team, how do you influence your team's culture so that people do feel safe in that way? I'm really lucky to have a really great team that just love working together and casual sort of feedback occasionally speaking to a team member if they reacted in a way that might have not fostered a good discussion about something, making sure that people know that the consequences to their actions are generally like not that severe. As long as it's coming from a place of like genuine wanting to do the right thing. I think just sort of demonstrating that or leading by example yourself. I, I can think of a really good time where I had a new member join my team and we were having a chat, one of our one-to-ones. And he said to me, you know, we might want to try doing war games with our infrastructure one day. What happens if we take down this bit of infrastructure? What happens if we try deleting that bit or changing permissions? I was like, yeah, that's a really good idea. Let's talk about it tomorrow at Stand Up. Let's see if we can propose this. We walked back to our desk and I had two engineers sitting there sweating bullets because they had accidentally just pushed an empty CloudFormation template and torn down the whole infrastructure. And it was 5.30 in the afternoon. So everybody was getting ready to go home and the whole test infrastructure got torn down. Fortunately, it didn't go to live. And my engineer was obviously sweating profusely at this. And uh, I think the only thing that we could really do at that point was, all right, how are we going to fix this? Do we know what happened? How are we going to communicate this? Do you want me to go buy you chocolate? And let's sort this out. Now, it was a test environment, but our only environment is a test environment at the moment. And as a result, had we left it until the morning, people would have potentially not been able to work on the system. So we needed to sort it. Fortunately, we had it taken care of in two hours. It was a really good test of our resolve. But despite the fact that there were absolutely no negative consequences to that action, he felt terrible. And, and you, know, you, you probably would too if you accidentally feel like you should have known better. But ultimately, at the end of the day, wasn't his fault. The tool generated code that wasn't good. We didn't have a check to make sure that the template was correct. 
there were a lot of reasons after the fact that we discovered why this thing happened. And none of them were because he was a bad developer. So we run blameless postmortems on incidents. And it's a really good technique. And I think John Allspa at Etsy wrote a really good blog post about it. And Atlassian also publishes some really interesting things about incident management. It was a really great exercise because it's very objective. You run through exactly what happened, how it happened, who was involved, why it happened. And at the end of it, what you come up with is a list of things to fix. But none of them is like, fire the guy. <laughs> right. So I think also everyone needs to realize that it you're you're going through a learning experience. Whenever you're building software, you're building something new. That's why you're building it, right? Like if it already existed, you just buy it. People make mistakes. It's natural. And generally it's okay. I can only think of a couple of times where it would not be okay to make a mistake. But you know, we're not launching nuclear missiles. We're getting TV shows in front of people's eyes, ultimately. So it's very important. It's it's our core mission, but nobody's dying. Yes, exactly. That's a it's an important thing. And I think you know you mentioned like you know I'm curious about the blameless postmortems. And you know when you're talking through that about how, how what happened, why it happened, or how it happened, or you know, trying to maybe be specific about us any specific person on the team, do you capture you log that information in more of a a developer did X versus so and so did X or we log what happened and who was involved. So if it was a Slack message was sent to the operations team by Jonathan, a code push went to Git by Mark, you know, like that's the kind of thing that we would, we would log it like that. It wouldn't be, you know, Tom pushed bad code. It would be, very chronological, very objective, some statement that everybody could agree actually occurred. And it's important to have the people involved in it because they're the ones who know the most about what happened. We'll be back with our interview with Jonathan in just a moment. Hi, it's me, Robbie. I wanted to take a quick moment to thank you for making time to listen to Maintainable. If you're finding these conversations valuable, please consider sharing a link amongst your peers on LinkedIn, Twitter, Facebook, TikTok, Snapchat, wherever you folks are hanging out. Also, maybe consider writing a review on Apple Podcasts and or Stitcher. Also, do you know someone in our industry that I should be speaking with on Maintainable? Shoot me an email to Robbie with a Y at maintainable.fm. And now, back to our interview with Jonathan Aborby. Still on this topic of psychological safety, do you see a direct correlation between that and, say, how maintainable your team's code base is? Yeah, I think so. I, I think there is because it, it creates a culture where feedback becomes important and people are a little bit more open to constructive feedback, receiving it and giving it as well. And that's really helpful. So the majority of code that we write on my team is paired, pair programmed, and we actually do test developer pairing as well. So it's not necessarily always just two developers sitting in front of the keyboard. And the thing that is really helpful from a psychological safety perspective is that people 
tend to be a little bit less reluctant, particularly team members who are a little bit less experienced or, or more junior working with developers who are more senior. It becomes a little bit easier to have that conversation about why would you do it this way over that way. And it doesn't completely eliminate the power dynamic barriers and pairing, but it does help a little bit. Sarah May gave a really good talk called The Power of Agile on pairing and power dynamics. I really highly recommend it. It's on YouTube, but I can't remember the name of the conference it was at. And she goes extensively into the power dynamics of pairing. And one of them is, is you know, sort of a senior junior. There's also power dynamics around gender and, and roles and, and persons of color versus non-persons of color. And it can help, I think. It can help if you have a team that feels like it's okay to be vulnerable in front of each other. I think that's really important there. You know, we, even our own team, one of the things we, we implemented about a year ago was just regular cadence with how often we're pairing. It sounds like you might be doing pairing probably more often than we do because we're a consulting type of company as well. But when we're working on our clients' work, we're, we are trying to pair people up a lot more than we used to. And the value of having juniors and seniors pair together has been way more... Uh, effective than I think we thought it would be. And not only helping to help the seniors improve, I think in a lot of ways as well. And, that, and I think that was something that we were as thoughtful about previously and, and or anticipated, I should say. And I think it's, it's helped them grow, I think, and, and mature in their own skill set because now they're having to explain why something works the way they think it does. And, and that, it, you know, all these things we take for granted and, and then hearing someone ask like, but how does this work? Or why is this I don't understand what this is doing and having someone else try to explain it can be quite effective in, in your own learning, I think, experience as well. Yeah, it also helps build coaching skills. And I think that's really important because even sort of as a leader, as a team lead, I would say that, you know, 80% of my management duties are coaching and helping junior team members grow into more senior ones and senior team members grow into more leadership positions. And coaching and pairing is really kind of a great way to do that. And just a couple quick last topics. What's your take on providing estimates to say stakeholders? I think you have to be really clear on the reason why people are asking for estimates. It can be a very sensitive thing for developers. I think developers recognize that the work that they're doing is sometimes just loads of dragons are hidden all over the place. And particularly if you have a difficult to maintain, difficult to understand code base, those estimates can be off wildly. But we, we never have 100% certainty. And I think it's just in our nature as technologists to want 100% certainty about things. And when someone is asking us for an estimate, what I think we're hearing more often than we should is please give me exactly the number of days that it will take to get this work done. And I don't think that that's always what product managers and project managers are asking when they want to understand an estimate. I think sometimes what we hear and what they're saying are not quite the same. I think often what they're asking is, help me to evaluate a set of options I think that's one reason why people give estimates, in, in which case I'm totally happy to say, I think that option is going to be more work than that option. In situations where you're, you're asked 
you know, I, I need to do this. I need to get this done by this deadline. Can you do it? How many days is this going to take? Can we pack in that one more feature? I think that that's kind of a cultural problem that needs to be addressed. I don't really enjoy a work environment where you have a product manager asking a development team to build something without having the development team also be able to feed back into that product improvement cycle. And I think when you do have that culture of, we can't build this maybe, but we could get you 90% of the way there. So what's the most valuable bits, that sort of feedback. I think that's a better way to do it. And the question turns away from providing costs, which is effectively what an estimate is, to how do you deliver value? So yeah, when, when you turn the question around, how much is it worth to you? Uh, it, it beca- <laughs> Don't ask it that way, but you know, uh, how much is it worth to you? That becomes a very interesting conversation because you end up in a partnership rather than a supplier versus consumer relationship. Yeah, it's a challenging thing. And I'm actually, I was literally just reading an email from a client this morning that they were concerned about how how much more time it took to, to accomplish something. And when I was reading the the ticket that the, one of our developers worked on, just how fuzzy the requirements were in some ways up early on. And like, I'm like, I have never experienced working on this type of thing. And maybe the estimate that we provided was very, you know, was off by like, you know, two and a half times the amount of time. I think it was like, it took like three days when it took, it was supposed to take like a day, you know, I think based on, you know, like, and to me, that doesn't seem astronomically off course. It's like, sometimes, as you said, there's a load of dragons hidden in these things. And so it's more about that conversation that's happening while things are happening or, or should we have had some more conversations early on about like, well, if we think it's going to take more than X, then is it even worth it? Or should we completely hit pause on this type of thing until we figure out a better direction, you know, as collectively with, you know, with our stakeholders there. Is the BBC hiring at the moment for additional engineers? The BBC is hiring. We are always hiring. We have roles in London, Salford, Glasgow. We're always expanding and moving teams around. I think in in Glasgow, where I'm based, we've just grown the technology, the design and engineering teams here by about 70 people in the last year. So definitely always looking for good developers, testers, team leads, product managers. Excellent. I'll definitely include a link to the, uh, the job site in the show notes. What non-software development related book do you find yourself most often recommending to people in an industry? I knew you were going to ask this. It's funny. The I find as I move away from fingers on keyboards all day that I end up reading a lot more books on process management. So I found the Phoenix Project to be really good and really interesting and eye-opening. And a lot of my colleagues have actually read it now as well. When people look at lean delivery methods or, or Kanban delivery methods, they think of this sort of as a way to eliminate waste. It's it's a really powerful message that you know, a lot of activities that you're doing may not be as valuable as you think they are. And just the very act of making the work that you're doing visible 
sort of points you in the direction of thinking, actually, maybe that activity isn't one that we should be doing. And having a more collaborative working environment and understanding the importance of limiting work in progress and understanding where the bottlenecks are in your workflow and the constraints are in your workflow, I think is super valuable. And I find now as a team lead, I'm more interested in that than I am in the technology that, that my team is actually working with. So I, I think that's probably the one that I recommend the most. Yeah, I've not. I've, I've purchased it. I've not read more than a couple first couple chapters of it, and I need to put that back on my to do list. I highly recommend the audio book because it's it's written as a novel, so it's one of those sort of management ebooks that's actually easy to listen to as an audio book. It's not ones that's like see figure one on page ten of the PDF. You know, <laughs> you know, as you're answering that, you're touching on how you're say spending less time with fingers on the keyboard. How have you come to terms with knowing that your success maybe, or with what you're doing, you know, going from maybe a software developer to being, you know, a a lead of a team to knowing that it's the team's output is part of your success and not being the, the problem solver yourself. It's really hard. It's really, really hard because I think I focus on a lot of things as a team lead and, you know, having gone from being a developer where, my personal fulfillment was measured in the number of lines of code I deleted in that commit to being a manager where my success measures are partly, you know, I think what's really important is the success of my team and how happy they are. And that is actually something that we measure from week to week and quarter to quarter is team happiness. So I I find that very fulfilling. I just think I have a different metric of what is good, but one thing that I can't do with those metrics is figure out the impact that I've had on improving that, right? I I can never know if they're just a happy bunch of people. And if you put another line manager in, they'd be just as happy because it's just one of those experiments you can't conduct. And I, I think the only thing that I can really measure myself on is how well the team is, is serving the business outcomes that the department and the organization need. And part of that is having people who are really eager to learn new things and and build good stuff and build the right stuff and own the outcomes. I get some uh, some valuable insights there. I don't think there's maybe enough conversations about that transition process and like how to still feel like you can actually quantify your uh, your success in that capacity because you know as you're saying like deleting a bunch of lines of code or you're fixing something in a technical mind and like we're problem solvers and puzzle, you know, we like to solve puzzles or whatever. And that sometimes that can be a little bit of a different challenge when we're dealing with the, the humans that are, that are actually doing that themselves. And so um, I have a lot more uh, empathy for my previous managers than I think I did when I worked for them. So I have a lot of empathy for my previous managers. I was like the worst employee at some places. So <laughs> it's good that we can uh, reflect on that. So. <laughs> yeah. so, Jonathan, where can listeners best follow your thoughts on software development online? I am on Twitter at Johnzo1, J O N Z O 1. And uh, that's probably the best place to follow me, although I'm not as active as I probably used to be or should be. Well, it's been such a delight having you on Maintainable, Jonathan. Thank you so much for talking shop. Yeah, thanks, Robbie. It's been great to be here.